morning, church. Good morning. I am Pastor Jay, and I have the privilege to invite you to turn your attention to the letter of 1 Corinthians in our New Testament. If you're newer to the Bible, it's about midway into our New Testament after the book of Romans. We're currently in a series entitled Wise Words for a Hurting Church. Uh, and saying that this was a hurting church is an understatement. This church was a, was a train wreck. And we've been watching Paul deal with this church in his letters. I should let you know that if you are newer here, or this is perhaps your first Sunday or visiting, this is not an easy sermon. Uh, this chapter is not an easy chapter. It is easy in the sense that it is ultimately encouraging about the body of Christ. But it deals with a very difficult subject, and that is confronting sin in the local church, unrepentant sin, and how the church, specifically the leaders, are to deal with it. So there are some hard things in this sermon, but ultimately I believe it is a very encouraging sermon for the saints. Here's the subject this morning. When we come to chapter 5, we're just walking through this letter chunk by chunk, because as Mandy said so well, we believe this is the infallible and inerrant word of God. And that every letter, word, syllable, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, is inspired by God. And therefore, we are to pay great attention to it. So the question that we're going to address this morning coming out of chapter 5 is this. How should a church handle a member, regular tender, who is discovered to be in significant, unrepentant sin. Significant, unrepentant sin. I'll be dealing with those two words, significant, unrepentant, shortly, in a couple different ways. But let me just give you my definition up front, then I'm going to deal with them a little more extensively in a few minutes. Significant, meaning that the nature of the sin is so serious that it actually casts doubt on the person's salvation. Doesn't mean they're not saved. It just casts doubt. In other words, just to make this a little bit light, the regular eating of too much ice cream of a guy probably doesn't rise to the level of significant sin. Okay? Got a guy walk out this morning for a service and said, Well, what I got out of the sermon is I have permission from the pulpit to eat all the ice cream I want. All right. We had a good laugh. That's not what we're talking about. Significant means, again, it rises to a level that casts some doubt. So, you know, the regular indulgence, too much ice cream, that doesn't rise to that level. Leaving your wife, leaving your husband, embezzling money, <laughs> something like that, homosexual behavior, that does rise to the level of significant scandalous sin. Unrepentant, second key word, defines this text, meaning the person won't let go of the sin despite promises made, sometimes repetitive promises. They won't let go of the sin. It's ongoing. Those are the two assumptions behind this passage this morning. So once again, how should a church, especially the leaders, handle a member, a regular attender who is involved, discovered to be involved in significant unrepentant sin? And again, if you come out of a mainline denomination like I did growing up, this probably was never addressed. If you come out of a more liberal church or don't come out of a church background, you may be sitting this morning going, 
That's the topic today? Unbelievable. I came for some inspirational goodies. <laughs> I do believe God's Word on whatever the subject encourages His saints and is a warning and serves as an evangelistic draw for those who are not yet saved. So that's my assumption. This historically has been treated under the rubric of church discipline. That's really the theme here this morning in chapter 5 because it involves the public discipline of sin in the church. And again, this is a concept that horrifies many people in PC churches. They would never address this. But it's in the Word of God on more than one occasion, and so we can't just brush it aside if we want to have a biblical church that is healthy. And Jesus addresses it, and Paul addresses it, so it's not a lightweight thing. 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to see three things the Apostle Paul is going to draw our attention to. First of all, the when of discipline. Secondly, the why of discipline. Thirdly, the how of discipline. Paul is eminently practical as he deals with this subject. So first of all, let us dive in the when of discipline. In Paul's opening words, he's very clear, compassionate, but straightforward about when this kind of thing is needed, verses 1 to 5. So let me read it. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality, meaning sexual sin of some kind, among you of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. The, the word translated sexual immorality there, we have two words in English. It's one word in Greek, and it's the Greek word porneia. You can recognize we get our word pornography from it. It is a broader word for sexual sin than the word for, say, homosexuality or adultery or fornication. This is a broader word. This covers the whole gamut of sexual sin. It is actually reported there's porneia among you, and of a kind that even the pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So some guy's sleeping with his stepmother. And you're proud of it. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled... And I am with you in spirit. The power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. All right. If you have not been with us, we have learned that Corinth Church in southern Greece, this church was not very old at this time, four or five years old. Apostle Paul start, helped start this church. And then he left after about 18 months. He is now over in western Turkey, what is today western Turkey. And he was in the city of Ephesus, which was a massive city. He's writing. He's heard, he's heard some horrible reports coming from this small congregation that he helped start. This is his baby. He loves these people. He is a spiritual dad to them. And yet he's all sorts of problems. But this one obviously gets his attention. A man is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Something Paul says, even, even your pagan neighbors know this is not appropriate. This is wrong. Not to mention that if you had any background in the Hebrew Bible, it's forbidden. Leviticus 18.8. So the very first thing the Corinthians need to realize, Paul wants them to realize, is there's a need for confrontation of this. You can't just ignore it, brush it under the rug. They were rationalizing it, they were minimizing it, they were celebrating it, they were proud of their tolerance. 
Paul's first step is to show them this is a very serious thing. And he rebukes them on the carpet. So the when of discipline, mark it down, is when a member of a church family is discovered to be in significant, unrepentant sin. Something needs to take place. Now, this is, a, this is the exact juncture where most churches balk and don't want to move forward. Either fear of litigation, fear of this, fear of that, fear of public disgrace, fear of criticism. Who we should fear is the living God and not taking His word seriously. Let's talk about the word significant. It's clearly a factor here. The difficulty is, number one, there's no clear set verse that says, okay, here's an index of sins you're to discipline for. But it does remind us, Paul does give us sin lists every so often in his 13 letters. Paul loves lists. He has all kinds of lists, lists of spiritual gifts, lists of sins, lists of qualifications for elders. Paul loved lists. He was very strategic and detailed and administrative in that capacity. And Paul does give us an index of sins in a couple key passages that would serve as a starting point for what what rises to the level of significant sin. Well, for example, if you just go over one chapter, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, you get one of Paul's most famous or infamous lists of egregious sins. And let me say before I read this, it is a reminder, here's another statement, it's going to shock some, that not all sin is equal in the Bible. It's very clear. Some sins, intrinsically, in and of themselves, are worse than other sins in the eyes of God. There are degrees of sin, not just because of their consequences, but the Bible teaches there are degrees of sin. Otherwise, you have passages like Matthew 11 that would make no sense. You say, what's what's Matthew 11? Jesus is preaching in northern Galilee. He's in a small village called Chorazin, which was a very small village, very conservative Jewish village. There's a synagogue that sits right there in the middle of that village. I've had the privilege to teach at that little synagogue, the ruins of it. Jesus preached in a synagogue and the people in Chorazin, very conservative Jewish people, very conservative religious people, rejected him. There he was in person. And he said, because you rejected me in my miracles, Matthew 11, It's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Meaning there are degrees of judgments. There are degrees of punishment in hell. The only way to justify that with the rest of the Bible is to realize there are degrees of sin that will be met with degrees of punishment depending on who the person is and the level of repentance. So that's a very important thing before I read this list. There are some sins worse than others. So Paul, here's a list that gives us a starting point. Verses 9 and 10, chapter 6. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, depending on how you translate this, homosexuals, or NIV says, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers. These are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were but you were washed. Here's gospel. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. There's the great hope for anyone involved in the snared in sin. But that gives us a, a starting point on significant, and it's in the same basic 
area of this letter. So we have an idea probably the kind of sins Paul's thinking about, specifically sexual sins of many kinds. In Galatians 5, I won't turn to it, but there's another list of deeds of the flesh, Paul calls them. This probably also is the kind of sin he has in mind. Idolatry, he mentions witchcraft, sowing discord. The Bible takes a very dim view of people who, who uh, spread dissension and discord in a, in a local church. Selfish ambition, fits of rage, he mentions drunkenness and sexual sin. So just a reminder, the Bible is very clear, not all sin is equal. There are some sins that are so serious and scandalous that they rise to a level of they, these have to be addressed if it's discovered someone's involved or committed one of these or ongoing in a local church. A couple years ago, the Free Church did a, um, a survey of some of the churches in our district and asked, what are the most common sins that you've done church discipline for, assuming the church has done church discipline? Let me give you the four, four of the top answers of sins that were disciplined for in these churches. Number one, sexual sin, specifically adultery. Number two, divorce with no grounds, meaning there's no adultery. Divorce, if, if they're not sexual sin, then... And there's two reasons for divorce in the New Testament. One, sexual sin has been committed. Number two, according to 1 Corinthians 7, an unbeliever has deserted and abandon a believer. Those are the only two grounds for divorce and remarriage. And so if somebody has gotten divorced outside of one of those two, it has led to discipline. Three, unforgiving, bitter spirit. And four, gossip and divisiveness. Those are four of the top reasons in this survey that rose to the level of significant sin. Second word is unrepentant. Right? Go back to verse 1, chapter 5. You have two verbs used in the, at least in the Greek, I think in the English here. The present tense of both the verbs indicate that the sinful activity, this significant sinful activity, is ongoing. It's still going on. The person will not let go of it. In fact, here, it's not just tolerated, it's celebrated. That's exactly, ladies and gentlemen, young people. Young people. This is where our culture's heading. It's not enough to get on the bandwagon for the sexual moral revolution. You have to now celebrate it. If you don't celebrate it, you will be censored and canceled. If you don't get on the LGBTQ plus revolution, you not only will be censored and canceled, you'll be castigated and you will be demonized. It's not enough to tolerate. You must celebrate. You must celebrate. And that's what this church was doing right here. They weren't just tolerating this kind of sexual perversion. They were celebrating. He says you're proud of it. They're, obviously, they're proud of how enlightened and tolerant they were. And Paul is very blunt with them about what's going on. The Bible says Christians are not to tolerate ongoing sin in the church any more than in their own lives. And, please hear this, it's not just the job of the leaders to expose sinful practices in the church. It is a job of every person who's part of that church family. You may say, well, doesn't the Bible say judge not? It does, but it's not talking about moral judgments. In fact, if you read on right after Matthew 7, 1, you'll see that because Jesus says judge not, and then he makes a bunch of judgments. So that's not what the verse is about. And here he's very clear, we are to judge. We'll read that just shortly. 
We are to make moral judgments all the time. We have to. We do it all the time. It is a responsibility, let me say it one more time, of every person who's part of a church family to be involved in exposing sexual sin or any kind of significant sin that is ongoing and unrepentant. Ephesians 5.3 and 5.11, listen. Do not let sexual immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now listen to the last sentence. This is to the church at Ephesus. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, expose them. Paul wrote that to the whole church, not just the leaders. So if you're a regular part of our church, especially if you're a member and you're born again, it is all of our jobs not to be on witch hunts, not to be, you know, nasty uh, policemen in that sense, you know, policing each other in a negative sense. It is our job to be on the lookout for the good of all the believers and all those in the church that are part of the family. And if we encounter somebody involved, insignificant, ongoing, unrepentant sin, it's all of our responsibility. And it should start with private confrontation, by the way. It doesn't automatically just bump up to the elders and staff. It should begin with private confrontation. In fact, some people say, well, how does Matthew... 18, the passage Mandy read, fit with 1 Corinthians 5. Well, let me show you. Go back to Matthew 18 for a moment. It's very important to see the connection here. Some people think that Paul is contradicting Jesus in Matthew 18. He's not. He's building on what Jesus said in Matthew 18. That's why I had Mandy read Matthew 18 this morning as a precursor to the sermon in 1 Corinthians 5. If you go back to Matthew 18, verses 15 and following... What we see here is simply this. Let me explain what you're seeing here. The purpose of Matthew 18 is the early stages of somebody caught in sin, somebody who does sin, and then there's private confrontation. In other words, the whole context of Matthew 18 is private confrontation. Private confrontation. And quite honestly, that's where a lot of church discipline should be handled. It should be one believer going out with another believer to coffee or to lunch and just saying, I... I'm seeing something that's troubling, and I want to see if it's true. If the person then repents at that point, process can be over. You see, that's, 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 that's the key. So the purpose of Matthew 18, the goal, is to determine, hear this, is the person repentant or not? The verdict is still out. That's, that's key. Verdict is still out, Matthew 18. You take one, and you take two, and then if not, eventually you tell the church. That's where there's over. Now... 1 Corinthians 5, the context is not private confrontation anymore. In 1 Corinthians 5, it picks up where Jesus left off. The person is determined to be unrepentant, and now it's time to tell the church. So that's how these fit together. Matthew 18 is about private confrontation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 is about public confrontation. It is now established we're dealing with somebody who is at the end of the Matthew 18 process. They're unrepentant. It's significant sin. They won't let it go. In fact, this church is celebrating this sexual perversion. And so Paul hits them hard about what they need to do. Now, before we go on to the why of discipline, I want to address one exception to the unrepentant rule that's very important. Very important. Here it is. 
Namely, that if the person who is caught in a significant sin is a visible leader in the church. According to passages like 1 Timothy 3 or James 3, if a person is in a highly visible leadership role, say they're a worship leader, a pastor, an elder, or somebody that everyone knows, everyone's familiar with them, then they are more accountable and held to a higher standard. And that means that, hear this, even if there is repentance, there needs to be public notification of the church because that person's going to be stepping down for a season of ministry. And you don't want them to just disappear with no explanation. That causes confusion and dissension. The most important thing in a crisis is good communication. <laughs> for some reason, God in His providence over the decades of our ministry has called Becky and I to be involved with dozens of cases of church discipline. And I can tell you we've made mistakes, and one of the mistakes is lack of clear communication. And so you need clear communication, but there is a time that even if there's repentance, if someone's a highly visible leader, then there needs to be a season where they step aside. Why? Because 1 Timothy 3, 2 says, a leader, an elder is to be above reproach. You're no longer above reproach if you're caught in a scandalous, significant sin, even if you repent. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, an elder who sins is to be publicly rebuked so that everyone can take warning. That's, that's important. It's not to be mean. It's not to be cruel. It's to remind us we are part of the body of Christ. It's not just a religious organization. That's not just a place to drop in and get some, you know, like I said, inspirational goodies. This is the body of Christ. Jesus calls us his bride. I was reading about a martyr this week in the history of the church. Hugh Latimer burned at stake in, at Oxford in the 16th century. He, he viewed his martyrdom, his martyrdom as a marriage to Jesus, he said, before they burned him alive. That's how Christ views the church. So even if a leader repents, there needs to be a season of stepping aside for the sake of rebuilding credibility and the credibility of the church. John MacArthur has a great paragraph at this point in his commentary in 1 Timothy, one of the best paragraphs I've seen describing this and what happens if you don't. Quote, the sins of a man in a leadership role are more serious and are to be punished more severely. Uh, and James 3.1 says that. If you're in leadership capacity, you will be judged more strictly than those who are not. Whether or not he repents is not the issue at this point. Since his credibility is forfeited, he is disqualified from the ministry in either case. He must be publicly rebuked so the people understand why he's no longer in leadership. That's the key. If you just remove somebody, all it does is sow a lot of confusion. Now please pay close attention to the last sentence. Attempts to hush things up and allow a sinning elder or pastor or visible worship leader or whatever to leave quietly often will often create the chaos of misunderstanding in a congregation. Okay? That's, that's the problem. That's why there needs to be clear communication. Finally, notice in verse 5, it says, deliver this person over to Satan. Obviously, people wonder, what is that? That sounds pretty severe. And what it means is probably to put him outside the fellowship of the church, which is viewed as the realm of Satan. 
mean, that's how Paul would have viewed it. At the very least, denying them communion, denying them membership, probably some form of public statement at some level, depends on how widely they're known. If they persist in unrepentant sin, possibly removing them from attendance. My dad was an elder, and before I ever got involved with dozens of cases of discipline, I watched him in our local church deal with two heavy, heavy cases of church discipline growing up when I was a teenager. One of them, the man was so defiant, so disruptive, so divisive, that we actually contact, the, our church contacted the police department and told them what they, we had done and said he is not welcome on our campus anymore until he backs down and stands down because he is being disruptive, he is making threats, and he is being violent in his language and in his intentions. And so we barred that family from fellowship until there was some level of repentance. So again, everything boils down to response. That's, that, that's the key here. Response is a key word. All right, that brings us to the why of discipline. And Paul here, again, is very clear. The why has to do with protecting the unity and the purity of the local church. Paul compares sin to yeast. That's an Old Testament symbol. Yeast spreading through the dough is a symbol of sin spreading. That's, that's how it's used. And Paul's point here is for church leaders to ignore significant unrepentant sin and just pretend like it didn't happen is deadly. It's going to grow. It's going to infect the whole congregation. He says this in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? So yeast is a leavening agent. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new leveled, unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So why do you do church discipline? It goes back to the fact that the church, ladies and gentlemen, young people, is the living body of Christ on this earth. It's the living presence of Christ on this earth. It's not just another club, not just another place where things occur the church is Jesus' chosen instrument to reach a lost world. He calls it his bride. It is the closest thing, he says, to what his kingdom is to be about. It's a visible representation of his kingdom on earth. That's why he is so jealous for it. That's why in Acts 20, 28, it says Christ bought the church with his blood. That's why discipline needs to take place when you have significant unrepentant sin. Uh, I came across one theologian in the 18th century this week, 19th century, who said this, when church discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. That's exactly right. Churches that don't practice discipline will undermine their own doctrine, their own health, and their own preaching. In fact, when you zoom back a little bit from the Bible and look at the Holy Testament, there's actually three purposes for church discipline. Let me give you all three. These would be worth making a note about. Number one is to protect God's name. Number one. And we know that God's name is the most precious thing to him in the world. The Bible is very clear about that. The second reason for discipline is to protect the church. That's the one Paul deals with right in this passage. And to put the fear of God in the people. And the third reason is to bring the 
sinning person to repentance. So there's three good reasons for discipline, and all three of those go out the window if you don't practice the discipline. It is very interesting to note, as you look back through church history, that the Belgic Confession in 1561 says three things have to be in place if you're going to have a biblical church. And by the way, these three three things are repeated in the Heidelberg Confession, which was from 1563, and in the Westminster Confession, 1640s. So the confessions of the church coming from different theological traditions are all united. That if you don't have minimally these three ingredients, you don't have a local church. You don't have a biblical church. You don't have a healthy church. What are they? Number one, there has to be the preaching of apostolic doctrine. That, by the way, is why a Bible study or a community group is not a church. People say, oh, I'm in a home church. Well, a home church has to meet criteria or it's not a church. Just getting together and breaking out the pizza and the soda pop and reading a verse and going, hey, what do you think? That's not a church. There has to be a declaration, a heralding, a preaching of apostolic doctrine. If there's not that, no matter how big the group or how small the group, you do not have a church. That's one thing the confessions are very clear on. The New Testament is very clear on that. second thing that has to be in place is observing the sacraments. And by that meaning baptism and communion. Unless a group, 40, 400, 4,000, unless that group is regularly baptizing and doing communion and having preaching, you do not have a church. You can have a church of 20 people. Don't mistake me, you can. I've been in home churches in India of 80, 90 people that meet in large homes and they do all of this. There's preaching, there's sacraments, and the third ingredient, three, there we go, three, third ingredient, church discipline. All the great confessions agree. If you don't have church discipline, you do not have a church. I would add a couple others. You have to have elders appointed. So when people say, oh yeah, I'm in a home church, my first question is, oh, do you guys have preaching? Do you do the sacraments? Is there tithing? Do you have elders appointed? Do you do communion? Do you do church discipline? Well, 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 no. Well, then that's not a church. The Bible commands us to be involved in a local church. We are to be regularly gathering with God's people on the Sabbath in a local congregation. That's a biblical command. It's not a suggestion. It's not optional. It's a command. And here it's very clear that one of the reasons is the protection of the church and church discipline. All right, that's the why. How do you do it? And again, Paul's very practical. Verses 9 to 13, he walks right through the process. 9 to 13. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. You'd have to move out of your neighborhood and leave your school and leave your workplace. That's obviously not what we're called to do. Notice notice what the text says. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a Christian or a brother, sister in Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. And then here comes, if you haven't choked yet, 
Here comes one of the harshest things. Don't even eat with such people. Why? Because part of the shunning process is not to be mean. It's to drive home fellowship has been broken. This is really, really serious and your soul's in jeopardy. And just to sit down and have a light, easygoing lunch, like nothing's wrong, ignores the elephant in the room that this person's soul is in jeopardy if they don't cease and desist. You can't just have a normal light chit-chat session with them. They need to understand the gravity of what is occurring. That is why, I mean, talk about a, non, a, a non-PC statement today, but there it is. In the word, and let me go back to something. When it comes to Scripture and the doctrines in the Bible, like church discipline, remember, friends, young people, oh, young people, hear this. <laughs> the first question of Bible study is not, oh, do I like this doctrine or not? If the kingdom of God is just a matter of voting on what I like and don't like, oh my goodness, the church is going to be set adrift in a sea of secularism and depravity. The first question of Bible study is, what does the text say? Not, do you like it? You may not like the doctrine of eternal hell. You may not like the doctrine of predestination. You may not like the doctrine that Jesus is the only Savior. You might not like the doctrine of tithing. You may not like the doctrine of church discipline. Look at a book written by God two to 3,000 years ago in a different culture is certainly going to have things that offend modern sensibilities, right? Be warned. If your doctrine and your views in the Bible all seem to line up with Oprah, run! Run! Don't say that to mean, mean to Oprah, but she's the high priestess of New Age, New Age pagan Gnosticism. If she's agreeing with you and you're agreeing with her, you need to go back and look at what the text says. That's how important this is. So the how of discipline, he begins by talking about our job in the church is to judge those in the church, not those outside. Verse 12. Now again, these are going to be some shocking verses to some of us. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Paul's rhetorical question. It's not. Are you not to judge those inside? Obvious answer, yes. God will judge those outside, and then he comes to this last statement, expel the wicked person from among you. Wow. You say, wow. What happens if you get sued? So be it. You do it carefully, you do it compassionately, but you do it. You fear God more than you fear, fear human government. If you don't, you're not taking the Lord seriously on this subject. Let me read it. Jesus' words, treat the unrepentant person like a tax collector. That's what he says. It's interesting, Paul makes no exceptions here, even if you're a close friend or a relative of this person. And quite honestly, from my experience in church discipline, this is where things typically go off the rails. How so? Well, here's a typical scenario. More often than not, someone's found to be in significant unrepentant sin, and then it comes to attention of some people in the church, and then they're approached, and there's meetings, and there's uh, confrontations, and prayer times, and warnings are given, and yada, yada, yada and, the, and the person doesn't repent. And so finally, the elders have to make a decision, and they have to make a public statement. And it's at that point where Paul says we are to cut them off. There's reasons for that, but one of them is, 
If we don't, what happens is that person, because they're still unrepentant, will begin to build coalitions against the leadership in the church. People begin to take sides, and it becomes extremely destructive. That's why he makes no exceptions here for family or for close friends. And here, Ladies and gentlemen, here's, here's the warning. Please hear this very carefully. The Bible warns us to be very careful about taking up the offenses of someone in sin against the leadership of a church. Because you don't know the whole story. Most often, more often than not in church discipline, so much has gone into investigation, confrontation, talking, praying. There's a whole iceberg below the surface of information that the average person sitting in the chairs on a Sunday has no idea about. And it's very easy to take up an offense against the leaders having no idea that our knowledge, your knowledge is this much and the leader's knowledge is this much. I saw that when my dad was an elder. I've seen it in situations I've been involved in. doesn't mean the elders get it always right. They don't. But it does mean they probably know a lot more than they put out publicly. And so be very cautious about taking up the offenses of somebody because you probably don't know the whole story. And in doing so, you will become disruptive and divisive and do great damage in the body of Christ. Paul writes in first, in, not in first, in Titus 3, warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, and after that have nothing to do with them. Such a man is warped and sinful and self-condemned. So there has to be some kind of public statement made. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, treat the unrepentant person like a tax collector. Well, that doesn't, be, that doesn't mean be mean to them. It means view them as an unsaved person that needs to be evangelized. So the key word is response. Key word, gently. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are mature should restore them gently. The word restore is a medical term for setting a broken bone. There is no excuse ever for church leaders to be harsh. Now, they'll be viewed harsh when statements are read, but there's no excuse ever to be harsh. That's not the process we're called to. I told you I'd share a couple of stories, and I'll share these before I land the plane. And this comes down to the how of this. Uh, Becky and I have had the privilege to pastor three churches in our ministry experience. First one was just three and a half years in rural Minnesota. Delightful congregation. But in just the three and a half years I was there, we had three different elders who were sexually immoral. And how we dealt with it depended on the response. Two of them were defiant and would never repent. In fact, one of them waged war back on the elder board and tried to divide it. He was an elder himself. And then another elder sided with him, split the board. Our district superintendent, thank God, as I called him, helped me as a 20-something guide my way through the process. It was a mess. Later, a very close friend of mine on the elder board committed adultery. I went over to ask him about it. He stood this close to me. I knew him well. Beloved brother stared me right in the face and swore and promised that it wasn't true. I said, okay, then I'll go to battle for you. 
Next morning at 4.30, phone rang, and he was weeping. And he said, it's true. It's true. He broke. And we didn't have to follow through with the rest. We didn't have to excommunicate. We did have to notify the congregation because he was stepping down for a season. He has since been on the elder board again over the years. But for a season, he had to step down. He had to rebuild credibility. He was no longer blameless anymore, you see. That's church number one. Our second church in Michigan, we were there for 23 years. And God in his providence, I have never seen a congregation have so much public discipline in it. This isn't even all of it, but I had to, we had to confront, fire, discipline, a bookkeeper, actually a business director, for embezzling several hundred thousand dollars. I had to discipline one of my most highly visible pastors for an unbiblical divorce. And I had to fire and discipline a tech director for adultery. Then, in a two-year period, four different missionaries had to be disciplined that were beloved missionaries of our congregation. Some of them had left our... Were, all four of them were part of our church. They had been sent out from our congregation. They were all over the world. All four of them unrepentant. All four of them had to be publicly rebuked. The, the church had to know what happened to them. You, you know, you, like, you can't write your check anymore. They're not on the field. We took them off the field. A fifth missionary couple we disciplined, they submitted, and then that didn't have to be brought to, this, to the level of church. We had to tell people to remove, but they were restored much more quickly, you see. The four that we had to read public statements about, one was for persistent lying, unbelievable lying. A, a level I've never seen before and was getting away with it for some time. Uh, another one of the missionaries was adultery. Another one was adultery. Another one was insubordination on the field. So it's not just sexual sin. It's significant, unrepentant sin. And in the history of our own church here over the last couple decades, we've had to discipline three pastors for sexual sin. This should always be done carefully with prayer but ladies and gentlemen, where most churches end up defaulting is just not doing it. And you should praise God you have elders here who take this seriously. I'm going to show you a cover of a book. We just finished going through this as an elder board. It's one of the nine Mark's books that comes out of Mark Dever's ministry. Church Discipline. It's a newer book. Jonathan Lehman. It's only about 120 pages. A small book. Very well laid out. Excellent. And this is the kind of thing leaders need to go through before the crisis hits. And so your elder board, which is a very healthy elder board that takes this stuff very seriously, recently went through this. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's not just a matter of sharpening our judging skills. It's a warning to us as elders what could happen to us. So this kind of thing should put a humbled fear of God in all of us. All right, what's our... What's our summary this morning? What's our summons? Well, it's pretty simple. One, do you know Jesus is Lord? That's, that's begging to be asked after this chapter. Are you sure you're saved from the coming wrath? The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this judgment. The gospel is Jesus came to do for you what you never could do for yourself. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all to bring the unrighteous to God. The Bible says hell is real and the final destination of all who do not repent and believe. But the Bible says if we repent, turn from our sin and hate it, and believe we're all in with Jesus, we can be forgiven and clean 
in this life and gain eternal life. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with being religious. It has everything to do with trusting Christ and Him moving His righteousness over to us and clothing us in it. That's the first question. Second question, if you are saved, saints, if you're saved, are you attacking sin in your life? Paul says in Romans 8.13, kill sin. It's a very strong word. <laughs> kill. Attack it. Put to death, he says, the, the deeds of the flesh. And so, as a Christian, before, even before I'm a leader, am I reminding myself, not morbidly introspective, but am I regularly reminding myself, not only of the gospel and the joys of the gospel and my identity in Christ, am I also reminding myself every so often of the terrible consequences if I give in to significant sin, what's going to happen? That I could very well destroy my marriage. I could very well destroy my reputation, my health, my children, my ministry, my joy, and the lives of those I care the most around me. My good friend on the elder board in that first church who committed adultery, one of the things I asked him to do, and we ended in a very good place after the whole process was over, but I asked him to write a letter to himself about what that adultery did in his marriage and family, and then to put it away, and that if he's ever significantly tempted again, to go back and read what it did the first time. And he did that. Those are the kind of steps we need to take to protect ourselves. Just before we sing, let me lead us in prayer. Father, this has been heavy stuff, but your church is precious. This is not a lightweight thing. This is the body of Christ. We thank you that there are other gospel-preaching churches in our area that take this just as seriously. Help us, Father, to be wise and faithful. I pray right now, if there's anyone in this congregation, which it probably is, that's tolerating backstage sin, that you would wake them up and bring them to repentance before it's too late. I pray for our elders our pastors and staff, our directors, I pray for the rest of us who are part of this church family, that we would be vigilant if there's somebody we need to talk to and it's been nagging at us, that we know we need to go. Father, give us the courage to go do that, regardless of how they respond. Help us to be gracious and kind, but to do it and not just sweep it under the rug. Thank you for the 128 years of protecting this church. And we pray that blessing would be on this church if Christ tarries for decades to come. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.